Good morning, everybody. If we haven't met, my name is Brian. I'm the pastor here at Northern Hills. Just so glad to have you guys online, everybody in the room. And I'm just going to kind of get right after it. When I moved here a couple of years ago with my family, I got to let you guys know, I fully embraced the Denver Broncos as my team. Okay, I made that an official initiation. Now, you're saying the reason I can kind of claim that, I'm already seeing negative nods, all right? I know you transplants. You got to just embrace your city, okay? I lived in Indianapolis in the Peyton Manning years, and so my city generously loaned him out so this city could enjoy a Super Bowl. So you're welcome. So I claim that. That was my Super Bowl victory too, I'm just going to say. But here's the thing. You need to pray for my wife. She was raised as a brainwashed Steelers fan. That... That's a hard curse to break, everybody. We are praying against that generational curse on our family right now. You can pray for Nicole. It's just a hard thing um, to overcome. But here's the thing I have learned. Just in the few years of being a Broncos person, there's not a lot of love that comes to Broncos fans. All right, it ain't easy being a Broncos fan. I'm just not gonna lie. There's just not a lot of respect you get from the football community. And for you non-football people, just humor me for a couple minutes, all right? We'll get through this, I promise. But even just through the football season, this is some of the stuff I feel like we've had to put up with the last couple years. This is one particular meme I saw at one point in time. The best thing about dating a Broncos fan, you know she ain't looking for a ring. I mean, it's cheaper, it's more affordable. Uh, some of you guys will get this inside joke if I was at this the second meme when you paid for extra leverage from the ref. Okay, like that face, classic one. This is one of my favorites though that I've seen this next one right here. See that, son? That's our playoff chances fading away. <laughs> but here's the thing. For those of you guys who actually care, we know everything is changing this fall when our football savior is coming. Mr. Russell Wilson, right? Everybody get excited. All right. I'm glad there's five Broncos fans in this church, all right? Apparently, there's other teams we're supporting. Now, here's the thing. There's, there's a little bit of playful jabbing with sports, you know, a little bit of disrespect and all that. It's all fun and games. I'm curious, though, if you are somebody in here who would call yourself a Christian Jesus follower, have you ever gotten any hate for your faith? Have you ever gotten a little bit of pushback or resistance for wearing the Jesus jersey, I guess, if you want to call it? Has there ever been any tension with that kind of stuff? Now, what I will first off acknowledge is we definitely are lucky to be living in a place where sometimes the resistance isn't super severe. Some of the worst stories we hear overseas, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But already in the global West, there is a tide that is shifting a little bit. There are some things happening. There are some currents forming. And actually, there is a trial going on right now in Finland. Again, this is the global West. Two people are right now under trial for developing these pamphlets that talk about the biblical definition of marriage. And the prosecutors are trying to make a case that their quotes from the Bible are actual hate speech and should be defined as such. There was actually even a study done by some Christian leaders in uh, America. This was a couple years before, honestly, things in the culture started getting really crazy. And they were asked, have you ever been persecuted for your faith before? 68% of the Christian leaders said, no, never have been. But this is kind of interesting. The next question was, do you think you will be persecuted for your faith in the coming years? 76% yes. So here's the thing. There is a shift happening right now. There is a growing hostility. There is a pushback that is starting to increase. And if you are just kind of joining this week, we've been in this series for like the last month or so talking about compelling Has anybody enjoyed the series? I've been having fun with this series. I'm sad that it's going to be ending this week, but um, next week we'll have some fun with a new series. But the whole premise here, if you're just joining, we've been talking about how Christians are called. It is our responsibility to be a compelling force in the culture. 
We're not supposed to retreat. We're not even supposed to just be repelling people. We are supposed to engage with the love and presence of God to bring cultural renewal. All right, you guys, some people are jazzed up today. I like, I heard a few claps in there. We're going to have fun today. All right, I'm like an ATM machine. Put some money in and I'll come out with more energy and passion. All right, so the better you listen, the better I preach. That's how this works. All right, so, so anyways, um, now you made me lose my train of thought. We're talking about compelling. And uh, here's the deal. All these last weeks, we've talked about this idea of compassionate nonconformity. If some of you guys have heard some of that, we talked about our responsibility to live into and speak truth. We talked about how the lifestyle of a Christian should be markedly different from the surrounding culture. And today, I'm going to be talking about compelling cost. Is there a price that you may need to pay for following Jesus? Is it going to cost you something to identify yourself even as a Christian. And really the question I kind of really want to lean into by the time we get to the end of this is, is there actually a possibility that God uses our very hardships for his own glory and power in this world? That's what we're going to be digging into. So for you guys who like to follow along your Bibles, phones, it'll be on the screens. We're going to be 1 Peter 4. I'm going to start in verse 12. We're just going to get right after it. This is what Peter says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, let's get a little bit of context here. Peter's writing in the first century. This guy knew Jesus face to face. He's one of his closest followers. This guy knows the Christian dynamic. And at this very moment in time, a massive state-sponsored persecution started breaking out against Christians, likely during the Nero um, era. And so these Christians, they are really suffering severely, so much so where they're starting to geographically disperse to try and spread out and avoid some of the things that are happening. And Peter is writing directly to this situation. He calls it a fiery ordeal. Now, I love that. He is not diminishing the circumstances. He ain't making light of these. He's like, no, this is some real stuff. And yet he also makes this interesting comment. He says, hey, this came on to actually test you. This is a test. Now, if you read through the Bible, and particularly the New Testament, there's a lot of allusions when it's talking about suffering in particular about this idea of testing. And it's actually this picture towards the idea of fire in a furnace with different golds and metals and different things like that. It's a purifying deal to bring out the best in it. And Peter is using this allusion to talk about the fact that even this test alone that God is allowing is bringing out what he desires in you. He's bringing out the impurities to make you into the person he wants you to be. That's interesting. Some of you guys aren't going to like this little Bible trivia. But there are more verses in the Bible about the spiritual benefits of suffering than there are about reading the Bible or prayer. Anybody glad that that's in the Bible right now? You're like, oh, that's good. That sounds like a great thing that I want to experience. And yet Peter says, this shouldn't surprise you. Your response to this shouldn't be that this is some strange thing that's happening. And what is so critical about this piece is Peter saying, you have to set your expectations right. And you, you guys know how important expectations are in every single situation. Some of you guys who have done online dating, you have learned the importance of expectations. Because <laughs> you know, you see the profile picture and you start to get a little excited and then you meet them in person. And that's called being catfished, by the way. If anybody doesn't know that term, that's what it is. Look that up if you don't know it. Some of you guys, you're newer to Colorado. And in February, you got a couple sunny days of 65 degrees and you're like, 
I live in the best place in America. This is amazing. Spring is here. And then reality set in, all right? So any of our natives or people near, well, we all know, right? Spring ain't here yet. Don't let it fool you, okay? There's going to be a couple more snowstorms probably in May or June. Just be ready for that. It happens. <laughs> expectations. Now, here's the thing. I really believe we have an expectations problem in the American church. Our expectations are sideways. They're screwed up. Because there is this subtle, sometimes not so subtle, belief in so many churches and Christians in our country that Jesus' job is to make my life better. That's why he exists. Jesus, you're here to bring me everything I want, to remove all the pain, and you just do your job and I'll do mine. I'll show up to church when I can. I'll read the Bible when I'm in the mood. I'll pray every now and then, but you do your thing and it's all gonna be good. So it's just a matter of time. If I'm faithful to God, he's gonna hook me up. I'm gonna get the dream job. I'm gonna get a house in Colorado for less than $10 million because they're all crazy expensive. I'm gonna find the perfect companion. We're gonna have no drama at all. They're gonna love me just the way I am. Oh, don't get married if that's what you think is going to happen. Not going to have any issues with fertility. We're going to have these beautiful kids that are always going to obey and love us. And we're just going to have this amazing life. Now you laugh, but how many of us, there's something in the back of our mind that's like, God, you ain't doing your part because I ain't getting what I want. You're not meeting the expectations. And don't get me wrong, guys. I genuinely believe, hear me on this. I really believe if you are serious about following Jesus, he will make your life better, all right? Hear, hear me on that. I don't think he's always gonna make your life materially better or more comfortable. I, I'm pretty sure he's gonna make it better in every case on some level. But in America in particular, we have allowed our cultural, honestly, consumerism, some of greed and just selfish motives to seep into some of our belief structures. We just have. And so we gotta reset our expectations a little bit. And here's the reality, guys. Should you choose to get serious about following and living for Jesus, there is a very real possibility that your life will get more difficult. I didn't hear one single amen there. It was very quiet. There's dead silence in the room, everybody. No amens, all right? First John 3.13, John says this, do not be surprised. Same thing Peter said. My brothers and sisters, if the world hates you, now, these are not the verses I like in the Bible. I'm just going to be honest. I read that. I think, I like friends. I actually don't mind when people like me. All right? So these verses aren't exactly encouraging for me. It's like, why would you even put that in there? But you got to understand what these writers are trying to help us see. That the Christian worldview and the Christian lifestyle in every culture in some way is going to rub up against it in the wrong ways. It's going to go in the opposite direction. And if you truly are trying to be faithful to Jesus, at some point in time, you're going to be at a moment where you're not going to get points for it. And it may actually come at a price. The world may hate you. Paul, writing around the same time, 2 Timothy, Timothy 3, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, what? Persecuted. Now, here's the thing. Paul didn't say, hey, I can guarantee it's a matter of time. Your 401k is going to explode. If you're just faithful to Jesus, you are going to get what was coming to you. It's going to happen. No, he says, here's all. the only thing I can guarantee you if you're serious about being a Christian. Persecution. That's what I can promise you. It's kind of funny. You think about it. You can live a perfect Christian life and still have things go horribly wrong. Think about Jesus. The dude said everything exactly right. He did everything right in the moment. He had the exact right tone. He literally lived a sinless life. 
and the guy gets crucified. That's what he gets for doing it all perfectly right. I had a friend from Colorado. We went on a hike this one time, and he was like, dude, here's the thing about you Christians. He's like, your whole PR marketing strategy, it is way off. He's like, you, you guys just do it all wrong. He's like, you tell us we got to take up our cross and we can't sleep around with all the people we want to sleep around with and we can't go out and party and do all the things we want to do and you just have all these different things that you believe about the world. He's like, if I was a pastor, he's like, this is how I would build a church. He's like, first, I would pick one political party and just pander to those people all the time. Just pick one group of people just to talk to. He's like, then I'd find all the verses in the Bible that talk about just the health and the wealth and the good stuff. He's like, I'd have the biggest church in five years in Colorado. So next week, we're going to be starting a series about your favorite political party and how it's going to make you rich. <laughs> but he's like, I understand what he's saying. He's like, this ain't really a good selling point. This isn't really a good way to get people to want to sign up for the faith. Hey, by the way, you're going to get persecuted. And we've been really lucky, though. Let's just be honest. If you live in the United States, you have probably the best situation as a Christian that you could ever possibly imagine that we've ever had in history. You've been lucky. We've all been lucky, really blessed. Countries fought really hard for religious freedom. I know it's tenuous sometimes, but overall, we don't really know anything about real Christian persecution. We don't. Let's just be honest about that. This might be interesting to some of you guys, though. In the last 150 years, there's been more martyrs for the Christian faith than the previous 18 centuries combined. That's what's going on. There's over a quarter of a billion Christians right now at this moment who live in areas where their very life is under the threat of death for identifying with Jesus. Over a quarter of a billion. And just in the last few years, this may not shock you guys, but I mean, just think about this. This is happening in our modern times. It got leaked out that China has these things that they call transformation facilities. Now, we call them brainwashing camps from the outside. And I will make a side note that it's not just Christians getting thrown in these things, but they are a central target. And what happens in these brainwashing camps is they place people in these windowless rooms and subject them to extreme verbal and even physical abuse for months and even years, demanding that they renounce their faith and place it in the Communist Party. There's one pastor that was sentenced to one of these transformation facilities for nine years. They had his wife tortured, and even his 12-year-old son was placed in what is called a dark room, which I'll spare the details on that. There's a lot of Christian leaders in China right now saying that the persecution is the worst it's ever been, even in the last 40 years. I actually know a missionary to China who uh, told us, I just, we, he told us this in person, heard this story, he said, you know, in the particular movement we were involved with, if anybody said they wanted to get baptized, we would actually require them to go through intense dehydration training because that's the most common form of interrogation used there in that country. Not only that, if you want to get baptized, they would make you get in front of the church and say, are you willing to suffer for Jesus? Are you willing to go to jail? And are you willing to die for Jesus? We're going to start instituting that at Northern Hills right now, actually, in the next couple weeks. See how serious you guys really are about this. But that was a requirement to, be, to join the church for them. You have to do these things. Now, I'm only saying this because this is even our modern example. You guys got to understand, this has been going on from day one for the Christian faith. You see this already happening in the New Testament. First martyr we've ever seen, Stephen, stoned to death. And not the cool Colorado stone thing that you guys are thinking of. This is like rocks getting chucked at your head. This is not fun stuff. Paul, roll out of the New Testament, beheaded. 
Andrew crucified Peter, who wrote this letter we're reading, was crucified upside down. That's how he was killed. Thomas, killed by spears. Matthew was stabbed to death. James clubbed. Simon sawed in half. Matthias was burned alive. John the Baptist, who you may have heard of, Jesus said there was nobody who has been greater than John up to that point in history, and yet in his early 30s, he was thrown in jail and got his head chopped off. That, that was within the first handful of years for Christians. And I only say these things, guys, to help us understand that since the beginning of this unbelievable movement we call the Christian faith of following Jesus, it has been normative for most believers to experience extreme persecution and even death for their faith. It's been normal. Now, this is far from the reality in America. And this ain't a guilt trip, or I don't hear my saying, you should feel terrible that you're not dead for Jesus yet. That's not what I'm saying. We should be grateful. And this is not something we're supposed to seek out, but I'm going to be having an honest moment with you guys. I mean, the American Christian church, we are not by any means the strongest representation of Jesus followers in the world, all right? We're honestly kind of stagnant. We are not, not the best representation. And again, not something to feel guilty about, but I do think one of the factors for that is it's pretty easy to be a comfortable cultural Christian in our country. It doesn't have to cost you that much. And you can kind of adjust a little bit to fit the cultural narrative and viewpoints that we kind of navigate today. But the tide is shifting a little bit. You think, I'm not some conspiracy theorist, right? So don't start putting me out to be the, this type of thing. But I've been in some circles with different pastors and leaders, and we've kind of talked about what, what do we maybe see coming down the pipe in, in America in particular? What, what might it require to be a Christian? And again, this is just pure things I've heard in conversations. So this is open conversation. Don't quote me. I'm not about to write a book or something like that. But just know the views that Christians have, honestly, anything when it comes to different morals, lifestyles, things like that, it is becoming more obnoxious to our American culture. It is. And it's going to start getting more and more that way, at least with the trajectory around. So what's possible? These are just things I've heard. It's possible that there's going to be some real legal challenges for churches and maybe Christians down the road, maybe in our lifetime. It may be very possible that churches get penalized for hate speech, for speaking on things that are very clearly talked about in the Bible. That's, that's real possible. It's possible that churches will lose their tax-exempt status for not aligning with certain, again, beliefs or viewpoints. I think it's possible that churches might even get prevented from constructing buildings or facilities or being able to meet in certain places. I think it's very possible that we could see some serious discrimination that gets encouraged by our culture against Christians, whether that's getting admitted to universities, different companies, maybe even being prevented from certain promotions or access to influence. I, I even hesitate to say it. I, I don't want to even say it, but it's possible. We just got to be open to the idea that churches might become another target for violence, like on a more regular basis, you know? Um, even just what we sometimes, this is sometimes called soft persecution, but just social dynamics, getting completely cut out from social, professional circles, not just disapproval, but total rejection from peers, family members. And again, this is something that may be rewarded, encouraged, and even things like career-ending slander that can completely ruin your ability to earn a livable income. Again, just hypothetical scenarios. That's all I'm saying. But here's what Peter says. This shouldn't surprise you. It's like you shouldn't respond like something strange is happening to you. So what is the attitude of a Christian in the face of real hostility? What should our attitude be? Well, Peter says this in verse 13. But rejoice! inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. 
for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, come on, that, that's some counterintuitive stuff. I don't know how many of you guys are like, God, my family has completely rejected me. I can't move up in my company. I've got no friends. My neighbors think I'm a weird cult person. I praise you. Thank you so much. I'm rejoicing in this. This is not the natural response. And this is why Peter's trying to talk about this. He's saying you have to reframe how you understand what's going on. You need to reset your expectations. You need a different perspective. You can't just look at these immediate circumstances, because if you do, you're going to get really discouraged and depressed. He's like, there is an eternal perspective you need to have. And that even these difficult circumstances are leading to this unbelievable eternal glory that is coming. And Peter gives us a little glimpse. He said, there's going to be a day when you are actually going to be standing before Jesus. He is coming back. He's going to be revealed. You're going to see him in all his glory. And he's like, that is going to be such an overwhelming moment that you are going to know for a fact that whatever suffering or pain you went through was absolutely worth it. It is going to be that overwhelming. Jesus, Matthew 5, blessed are you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Now we sometimes don't like talking about this idea of rewards in church. It's like, well, we don't want to appeal to people's greed or ambition or anything like that. But what's interesting is Jesus, a lot of New Testament writers, they use this motivation for what's coming in the future as a way to kind of keep you focused, and keep your eyes on the prize. It's amazing how much it pops up. And Jesus is saying, you got to understand, there is an eternal account that is getting a deposit in it anytime you experience something on my behalf in this world. This is way better than having invested in Bitcoin 10 years ago. This is like really, really good stuff. And you're wondering, well, what kind of rewards are we talking about here? Like what kind of stuff maybe does Jesus have in store? There's no single definitive verse that says this is exactly what it's going to look like. And a lot of it is just imagery because I don't think words can honestly fully contain what there is to look forward to, but just like little tastes. In Revelation 21, it talks about this idea of a city made of pure gold, jewels, this foundation decorated with every kind of precious stone. God lives in a nice neighborhood. Just know that, guys, all right? He knows how to live it up. This is a place you want to be. The New Testament talks about crowns and rewards and opportunities given out for faithfulness to him in this life. Revelation 21.4, even just about the emotions involved with heaven. He will wipe away every tear from the eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. So it's just this glimpse of this unbelievable utopia, the emotional joy, the unbelievable blessing, honestly, just this incredible environment to live in. We can't even contain it with words. So much so that Paul himself in Romans 8 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. He's like, it's like putting a kiddie pool next to the ocean. It's like stupid to even make a comparison. This is dumb. That is what we have to look forward to. And Peter alone is saying the brilliance and majesty and unbelievable presence of the eternal Jesus coming back in that moment, it'll be so clear and overwhelming with the reward of that alone that it will completely just cause whatever suffering pain came to diminish in the past. It'll just be like nothing. It's not even worth comparing. And for any of you guys in here, who are going through, honestly, just real stuff, because we all do. I mean, life gets real. If this is any encouragement to you, you need to know God promises us right here that he sees every moment of difficulty, suffering, 
He knows the pain. He knows the difficulty. He knows the trial and struggle that it is. He sees it. And he promises you that he's going to make it worth it. He's like, you are never suffering in vain. This is never pointless or meaningless. I am bringing this to an amazing end. So some of you guys just need that encouragement today. All right, this is not a hopeless case. You are one day closer to heaven, no matter who you are, if you trust in Jesus. That is the promise you have. But there are some conditions with this thing, all right? This ain't just a get-out-of-jail-free ticket here. Verse 15, Peter says this, If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. So here's the deal. Here's what Peter's saying. Not all suffering is created equal. Just because you're going through some hard stuff doesn't mean that you're getting points with God. All right? I got two little kids. Um, let me just say, they're difficult. All right? I know I'm a pastor, so all my kids should be perfect and behave themselves just perfectly fine. No, my kids are, are terrible. They're honestly terrible sometimes. I'm here to get a break from my kids, which is why I'm going to preach for six hours so I can just stay here as long as I possibly can to get away from my children. I love my kids. But it's funny, my kids, even when I have to discipline them, which is often they don't understand it. They're like, oh, the injustice. How dare you, dad? I'm the victim in this situation. I'm like, well, maybe you shouldn't have sat on your sister's face. Like, there's reasons why this is happening. Or even just the last couple of days, maybe you shouldn't have poured blue paint all over the carpet, which, by the way, doesn't come out very easily, all right? So don't judge me if you come over to my house and there's blue all over the floor. But my kids, they don't get it. And Peter is saying, here's the deal. If you're going through some hard stuff, it better not be because you're doing stupid stuff. He says, not as a murderer, thief, or criminal. He even says, even as a meddler. Some of you guys appreciate this. You know what a meddler is? This is someone who acts as a supervisor when they have not been hired to be one. <laughs> you got any of those in your lives? They just like to get involved in everything. They got an opinion. They got something to say. They are the authority on the matter of your life. Peter's like, you shouldn't be getting messed around for that stuff. And so this is an opportunity to ask an honest question. If you're going through any hard stuff today, is it really because of Jesus or is it because maybe you've been a jerk? Like really though, like is it, is it on you? That's what Peter's saying. But there's another question I think that we have to ask ourselves. If you're experiencing no resistance, no pushback for your faith at all, why? Is it possible that you've learned how to filter your faith in the right context so you can avoid the awkward situations, so you can avoid any insults or dynamics that might be at play? I mean, really, when was the last time you really went on the offense with your faith with somebody? When was the last time you stepped out and spoke the truth that you knew you had to in love, even if you knew it might create some tense dynamics in the situation. I'm not so concerned for those of us in this room that we're going to experience so much suffering that it's almost become unbearable. My fear for so many of us is that we are unwilling to even step into minor persecutions for our faith out of the social disapproval that might come out of it. Peter says this in verse 16, however, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. 
This is actually one of three times the actual term Christian is used in the New Testament. It was just starting to take form here in the first century. And actually, Christian started out as a derogatory term. It was a put down for people. Oh, look at those Christians. And it meant little Christ. Look at those little Jesus people out there. Like it, was, like it was not something you want to be identified as. And then Christians just, they started to embrace it. How crazy is it that 2,000 years later, we are in here identifying with that same name? I mean, that's pretty cool to say that we share the same name as these people from 2,000 years ago that were experiencing real suffering for their faith. And Peter says, don't you dare be ashamed. Can we just have an honest moment here for a minute? I've been embarrassed to be a Christian before in my life. I felt stupid for following Jesus. I've been in situations where I really felt like the odd guy out. And I almost felt like I'd apologize for what I believed. And I think if some of us are honest here, you felt that way too. You just, you just do. You get in these situations. You just feel dumb sometimes. Peter himself, who wrote this letter, denied Jesus three times. He's like, I don't even know the guy. And yet, Peter says, you have nothing to be ashamed about. You are a child of the Most High King. You have the eternal God on your side. There is nothing you need to be looking down about. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. You have the power of salvation, and for that you should praise God. You understand who you're serving, that you bear that name. You have nothing to be looked down on. I'm telling you, here's the thing. Some of us in here, you just got to step into this some more. We got some limp-wristed Christians. Some of you guys, you just got to take it on the chin. You're like, no, yeah, actually, yeah, I do believe in Jesus. I do. Where do you want to hit me? I'll take the hit. And honestly, let me ask you some questions. What do you actually believe? I've kind of learned that. I'm like, I'm going on the offense now. All right, you think you got all the answers. Let me ask you about what you believe. Oh, by, and by, after I've poked a couple holes in the worldview, it's like, oh, yeah, you've got no foundation to stand on, all right? I got a solid one under my feet called Jesus that isn't going away, all right? So I got nothing to apologize about this. <sighs> Sorry. You guys get me all fired up. So you praise God. There ain't nothing to be ashamed about that you bear that name. You serve the living God. He is coming in glory. You bear that name. His presence is residing in you. So you step forward with faith and courage, and you bring the power and presence of God. It is compelling. Now, some of you guys might remember this story. It was in the news a couple of years ago. Um, when 21 Egyptian Christian men were kidnapped by these Islamic extremists. And these guys were put in these orange jumpsuits, put on their knees like criminals. All this was taped for the world to see, given this bogus trial. This was a religiously motivated event, by the way. And every single one of these guys, if you don't know the story, they were given an opportunity to renounce their faith in Jesus. These extremists told them, all you have to do is say, Jesus is not God. I do not believe in Jesus. And you can go home and see your kids and your family. That's all you have to do. Every single one of these men refused to do that. And every single one of these guys died as martyrs that day there on that beach. Now, you look at these guys and you think, Man, all you had to do was say a few words. And most people would understand why you had to do it, to get home to your family. And yet, every single one of them refused to deny the Jesus that they knew and they worshipped. There is something about suffering for Jesus that's compelling. 
when you see people willingly suffering at the hands of injustice for the sake of Jesus, it challenges and strengthens existing Christians, but it also causes people outside the faith to kind of take notice. Say, man, what is it that they believe in so deeply that they are willing to give up everything for it? There was actually even one other man in this group who was with these guys. His name was Matthew. He's from Ghana. He was not part of this Egyptian Christian group. He was a traveling laborer who was just with them trying to earn some money. He ended up getting taken with them because he was traveling with them on these job sites. And these Islamic extremists told him, hey, man, you don't have to die with these guys. This is not your fight, all right? All you have to do is tell us that you don't believe Jesus. Well, Matthew wasn't a Christian when he joined this group. He was just looking for work. He sees the faith and conviction of his coworkers. He is so overwhelmed by it that when he was on his knees there in front of those guys, they said, you just have to renounce Jesus. And he said to them, their God is my God. And he paid the ultimate price. This guy had only known Jesus maybe for a day or so. Guys, suffering for Jesus is a compelling witness because it is an embodied expression that Jesus is worth it. He is worth the insults. He is worth the hate. He is worth the slander. He is worth the rejection. He is worth death itself. And you wonder, well, why is that so compelling? Why is it so worth it? Why would these men go that far? Because you have to understand what these men did and what hundreds and thousands, even millions of Christians are experiencing right now today. It is a tiny glimpse into the very suffering that Jesus did on our behalf. You see that Jesus was taken in a bogus way. He was essentially kidnapped. Jesus was treated like a criminal, put on his knees, spat on, beaten, given a bogus, stupid trial, condemned to death, treated as a public spectacle, and executed by some jealous, murderous people. And yet, in that moment, those guys had no idea what they were doing when they were nailing Jesus to that cross, because he was God. And he was taking the sins of the world upon himself, even the people who were driving the nails into his hands. And in that moment, he buried sin and death in the grave, but he didn't stay there. He defeated it once and for all. And now he is ruling, he is reigning, he is preparing a kingdom for his children. This is the Jesus we worship. And you need to know, Jesus knew it was worth it. It was worth it for him. All the suffering that Jesus experienced, if you were the only person on planet Earth, he would have done that for you because he knew it was worth it. You were worth it to him. Even in all your sin and the disgusting stuff in your life, Jesus said, no, I'm willing to go to the cross for them. It's worth the suffering. And so you need to understand, when you truly appreciate and understand the suffering and sacrifice of Jesus for you, you see, oh, he's worth anything. He's worth any hardship. I'll pay any price for that man who died for me because he wasn't just a man. He was God himself. And so our opportunity, Northern Hills, is to step into whatever God may call you to. It may not be the most extreme stuff in the world, but you have the privilege to bear the name of Jesus because of what he did for you. And we're actually going to close today's service by taking communion together. I could not think of a more appropriate thing to do as a church community than take communion. And if you're just visiting us, 
you're checking the Christian thing out, don't feel any pressure or obligation. We're not keeping track of whatever. This is just a quiet moment of reflection, but you should have gotten a little cup when you came in. If you didn't, you could just raise your hand real quick and there's people in the back ready to give you one and we'll get you all set up. But guys, when we think about this communion thing, um, this is an opportunity to really declare the suffering that Jesus experienced on our behalf and the faith we have in its effect to save us and that Jesus didn't just suffer, that he overcame all of it so we could be forgiven and set free. And Jesus himself instituted this sacrament. Christians have been practicing this for over 2,000 years now. And so if you just want to get that little bread out from the top, you can just peel it out. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he told his followers, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take this in remembrance of me. So when we take this bread, we remember the fact that Jesus laid his body down on our behalf and suffered for us. So let's take this bread right now and remember Jesus' body broken for us. same way that night Jesus took a cup and he said this is my blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins when we take this we declare the saving effect of Jesus blood poured out for us that in our faith in him we truly are cleansed from all of our sin and so let's take this together and remember Jesus blood poured out for us God, in this moment, we just praise you and thank you that you would be willing to leave heaven itself and come into this world on our behalf and die in our place, experiencing horrific suffering at the hands of injustice for us so that we could be cleansed and forgiven, so that we could be invited into your presence, into heaven itself, the hope of eternity. Lord, we can't even begin to appreciate and fathom the unbelievable gift that is. And we just right now acknowledge the suffering you were willing to endure for us, Jesus. And we pray for all of our brothers and sisters around the world right now that are really experiencing true, severe persecution. Their lives are at risk. They're undergoing torture. They're in jail cells right now. They're separated from their families for the name of Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would give them courage and strength, that they would be a compelling, bold witness of the love of Jesus, even to the very people wrongfully killing and accusing them. And for all of us, Lord, we have the amazing benefit of living in a country that really has been safe and overall good to Christians. But I do pray, Lord, that whatever suffering or persecution may come our way in the coming days, that we would step into it with boldness that we would be courageous in the face of difficulty, that you would give us that vision knowing, Lord, that this is not all there is. We are one day closer to eternity. And that whatever challenges we may face, we are gonna stand before you one day and see that it was all worth it, Lord. We thank you for that promise we have. 
And so help us, Lord, just go out into this world with real courage and faith. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Everybody said, amen. Thanks for checking out this week's message. If you'd like to get involved here at Northern Hills, check out our website at inhills.org or download the Northern Hills app. We hope to see you again soon.